If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio. And the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. All of the major continents could have stopped it. All of them, including Britain. Uh, and the fact that they let the peace of the world slip through their hands uh, is worse than a mistake or an error. Uh, it's a tragedy. That was Jay Winter discussing the outbreak of the First World War. Through the 17th century, it been much more common to put the Pope on the bonfire, so Pope-burning processions were much more common. Mm. It's really an 18th century idea that Guido Fawkes might personify. And that was Claire Jackson talking about the gunpowder plot. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. 
Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Jay Winter, a professor of history at Yale University and one of the world's leading authorities on the First World War and its legacy. He edited the multi-volume Cambridge History of the First World War, which was published earlier this year to critical acclaim. A few weeks ago, he paid a visit to the UK and we sent our web editor, Emma McFarnan, to meet him and share his thoughts on the conflict as it reached its centenary. We understand you've edited the, the new Cambridge history of the First World War. Sounds fascinating. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, the Cambridge history of uh, the First World War is three volumes, um, 70 chapters from uh, historians all over the world, and it is uh, truly a global history. Uh, in that it uh, entails uh, summaries of research, best practice, learning on the First World War in all continents and in all theatres of military operation. So it is an attempt to create what we call a transnational history, uh, a history that uh, traverses the borders of the nations that uh, waged war in 1914 to 18 to show how much of a global earthquake it was. I understand you sort of, I'm sure mentioned about the cost of war. I mean, I was really interested to, to read that. What, what conclusions did you re- reach on that matter? One of the conclusions that's come out of a systematic study uh, of the global uh, accounting of war is that we have consistently underestimated the number of people who died and we've uh, persistently, consistently have underestimated uh, certain categories of illness uh, most egregiously that of uh, psychological disability, what we call shell shock. Um, by looking at uh, different um, national experiences and bringing them together, it's possible to say that the official estimates of 2 to 4% of all those who were injured in one way or another, 2 to 4% of all casualties uh, suffered by soldiers of the First World War were psychological, is a vast underestimate. Uh, perhaps on the order of uh, uh, a factor of 10. So my guess is somewhere between um, 20 and 40 percent of all men who were uh, injured in one way or the other had psychological disability as well as their physical disabilities. Uh, And this uh, conclusion uh, arises from uh, the projection backward of the medical history of the Second World War. If you look at Monte Cassino, it's a terrible war, but a battle, it it, it certainly didn't uh, leave anything to the imagination of those who had been through the Battle of the Somme or Passchendaele or Verdun or the Italian Front or Gallipoli. Uh, so the claim uh, that I think we can make is that for a whole series of reasons uh, we have underestimated the, uh, the army uh, of the psychologically disabled who uh, lived through the interwar years without acknowledgement, uh, without pension, without help uh, and, uh, and without um, much hope. And that brings me on to my next question about the sort of medical care, the transformation, if that's the right word, of, of medical care at that time. Well, again, the medicine is transnational. It's, it's not something that happens mm-hmm. in one country. People read the, the, the findings of medical journals in different countries. and There are all kinds of mixed uh, outcomes. The first, for example, is uh, when you next go to the, the dentist, think about the First World War because Novocaine is one of the products, painkiller. Uh, there are all kinds of forms of surgery that develop because of the necessity uh, of finding ways of putting bones together and so on. So there were medical advances, there's no question about it. Uh, 
uh, but the medical profession is by and large conservative and it adopts a, uh, a habit of uh, trying to keep within the boundaries of known uh, practice uh, the uh, recommendations that it gives. And in, in this respect, the uh, development of treatment for shell shock was extremely slow. Uh, and the majority of um, practitioners, medical practitioners, didn't believe there was a category uh, called shell shock. So it, it took a long time uh, before the likelihood of an individual who suffered a wound also having a psychological injury. You can imagine if someone doesn't have uh, his legs or half a face or other forms of... Uh, uh, disability, that uh, the consequences of that are not only physical. It took a long time for that to arrive as a norm of treatment and practice in the medical profession. And in terms of um, looking at the wider picture, how did the war change the world, if you can summarise that? <laughs> well, uh, the first thing uh, that the First World War did in uh, leaving uh, its mark on the century that followed, uh, is to destroy the notion of progress as an inevitable feature of uh, human development. Um, if you look at the great world's fairs of 1900, let's say, or the ones earlier, 1889 or 1851, they're all about the onward march of humanity, which usually means white humanity, but nonetheless, uh, the onward march of humanity. The First World War showed, as Paul Valéry put it, that, that we are mortal, that uh, the Western society, if you want to call it that, European society, was capable of committing suicide. This had uh, great consequences in multiple directions. One of them um, is to give heart uh, to those who um, both created and defended the Bolshevik Revolution that they had uh, a future, whereas the decadent bourgeois West that had engaged in this bloodbath had none. It was an old, outmoded uh, civilization. In South America, for instance, the idea of looking to Europe as the model of social development was blown to pieces. And instead, oh, a composer like uh, the uh, Brazilian, Villa Lobos, who previously had written music a la Debussy, you know, in a French manner, decided to do Brazilian music, to turn inward. Uh, and uh, to an extent, uh, Latin America became... Uh, independent of Europe culturally as a result of the First World War. Uh, of course, the United States came in and filled the imperial gap uh, pretty rapidly, but nonetheless, the, the notion that the, the world of 1914 could be recreated after 1918 was, was blown apart. And uh, I think the, the most important issue is that the First World War was both the apogee and the beginning of the end of empire. Uh, it was an imperial war won through the imperial power of Britain and France, which is precisely what Germany didn't have. Germany fought the war to gain an empire, but needed an empire to win the war. So it was uh, impossible virtually from the beginning of the war for Germany to win. On the other hand, uh, multiple um, movements all over the world took Woodrow Wilson's idea of self-determination that came as a justification of American entry into the war, a kind of warring, took it seriously without realizing that he meant self-determination for white people. Uh, so the Chinese wanted their land back, and the Japanese had occupied part of uh, China, Shandong pro province, birthplace of Confucius, wanted it back as Chinese after the war. They didn't get it because Japan had claims through its naval power that China didn't have. 
The result of this was the creation of a student movement called the Fourth of May movement that produced the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party is a direct outcome of the First World War. Uh, if you want to see the uh, hostility between Japan and China, which exists today in historical perspective, you've got to go back to the war. So the, the, the balance of geopolitical power was radically altered. The beginnings of the end of empire accompanied its high point. It's one of those great contradictions that the structure of power in the world radically altered, but it took a century for that alteration to work through its consequences. How has remembrance changed of, of the First World War? I think fundamentally uh, there are three different uh, schools of remembrance of the First World War. Uh, the British and Anglo-Saxon school is uh, one which has the First World War as, uh, I would say, a catastrophe. The, the way that uh, Ted Hughes used to describe it as a defeat around whose neck someone hung a victory medal. So there's, there's a, a, a dark... Uh, uh, luminous, dark glow attached to this event. Um, and then there are those who don't use the word commemoration, uh, use the word celebration. And I think there you have partly it's, uh, it's true of the French because they threw one, several million uninvited German guests off their territory. In Belgium, the same thing. Um, in Poland, for instance, the independence of Poland is a result of the breakdown of the imperial system of Germany, Russia, and Austria-Hungary that had basically uh, uh, split uh, Poland for uh, 150 years. But the, but the critical, I think the critical thing to bear in mind is that um, the notion of celebration in certain parts of the world about the First World War uh, is incompatible with the notion of commemoration, which is an act of mourning. So you have those two. And, the, and, and there's a third uh, uh, dimension of the, of the First World War which sees it as a stage on the way to something else. For example, national independence, decolonization, or communism. Uh, and there the, the war is, is, as it were, an antechamber of history. Uh, I've been to Japan, uh, China, Singapore, and, and there the First World War is only now beginning to open up as a subject of fundamental importance. So the, the, the Anglo-Saxon way of doing it, which I think, by the way, is different from the Americans, who basically don't consider it as a serious matter because they were only in the war for 18 months, the Second World War, again, is a screen memory, including the First World War. The Anglo-Saxon world, bar the Americans, um, sees uh, uh, the First World War through a glass darkly. Um, many Europeans, uh, not all, but many Europeans see it as a matter of uh, independence. In the French and the Polish case, for instance, uh, the Serbian case is one of those two. So there's something to celebrate. The people who celebrate the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in uh, Sarajevo. It's hard to believe, you know, that, yes. uh, that terrorism, about which we know something today, should be celebrated, but it's there. And then there's the third group of people who see the First World War as an antechamber to their history. And you mentioned mourning there. Do you think that uh, our emotional perspective, and especially at the moment, it's very emotionally charged, it seems, um, does that cloud our judgment and analysis of the First World War? No, I think we, the First World War is highly emotive uh, for the, the simplest reason that it was the biggest bloodbath in history um, and that um, families all over the world measure the First World War. Well, they measure themselves by the absences, by who isn't there. Uh, and who isn't there is everywhere. I, I spend a reasonable amount of time now in Australia and 
the First World War, it was captured brilliantly by the, the greatest, I think the great historian of Australia at war, Bill Gamage, wrote a book called The Broken Years. And it's, it, their heroism is celebrated in Australia. Their, their determination to, uh, to win against all the odds, even when defeat faced them in Gallipoli, that's the, the, the they honor. But there's something that was broken in the First World War, uh, which is, I think, explained by ordinary people in terms of their family history. Uh, because the First World War was the moment when family history and world history crossed, then the affect of mourning becomes attached to the First World War itself. Again, moving on to kind of um, how we remember the war today, do you think uh, there's been a lot of discussion um, for us about Blackadder and whether it did more harm than good uh, in terms of how we think of the First World War? Do you have any strong views no. either way on that? Uh, the critical point uh, was uh, made 50 years ago. And the, when BBC Two law, launched its Channel 2, with the 26-hour series on the Great War, still the finest television history ever put together. Um, the people who wrote it were conservative historians, Corelli Barnett, John Terrain, and they wrote it in a certain script, that the war was won, it was hard, it was awful, it was bloody, it was terrible, but it was won. But the public saw the images, not the words, and what they saw was the horror of the war and I think there's a what I would call a pacifist um, shadow of the First World War, which exists to this day in, in the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, you know, I taught for 25 years at Cambridge, and every year I would get people saying, "Great Uncle Harry or great Grandfather" or so on. These these kinds of, uh, uh, of of family associations are real, but but at the same time, the notion that war is not a legitimate choice for governments has come out as a result of a whole series of mistakes that were made, the first of which was the First World War. It was a catastrophic moment. Uh, and that's why I think the, the notion that Black Adder did harm or disservice something is, is silly, because it's not necessarily the history that matters, but the family history that matters. And families see the First World War as an extravagant and catastrophic waste of human life. Uh, and, and indeed, if I'm right, that the psychological casualties of soldiers who fought the First World War uh, has, have been unrecognized, it, the war cast a shadow over family life for 50 years after. That's why the novels of Pat Barker are so powerful. You know, she was the illegitimate daughter of a shell-shocked man of the First World War, and then he vanished from their family life, and another shell-shocked man came into it who became her effective father. This is the story of millions of families. And it's never been recognized because it's not in the National Archives. It's in the family archives. And they're the ones that last. So Blackadder catches something that crosses the lines of family misery, uh, family sadness, looking after a psychologically disabled man without public acknowledgement, without a pension, without medical care without hope. This is the burden that war put on the shoulders, by and large, of women, and it's never been acknowledged to this day. So how can Black Adder do more damage than what the war did to the millions of men who suffered through it? And given, you know, we've talked about mourning, the, the loss of life, do you think, after all your research, was it right to go to war in 1914? The decision to go to war in 1914 was taken by every government on the basis that it was 
acting in a defensive war, that it didn't bring war about, uh, but that it had been forced into the conflict. Every country uh, took that view. Uh, now we know that, by and large, that wasn't true. All of the major combatants could have stopped it, all of them, including Britain. Uh, and the fact that they let the peace of the world slip through their hands uh, is worse than a mistake or an error. It's a tragedy. I wouldn't call it a crime because the notion of pointing fingers, as in Article 231 of the Paris Peace Conference, said Germany is guilty. So, yes, there are different levels of responsibility for the war. But I think the notion of tragedy is captured uh, brilliantly by uh, Christopher Clark's uh, Sleepwalkers, in which he basically says they knew the destructive potential of the weapons that they had, the arms that they had, but they didn't really understand what they were doing. They were sleepwalkers in the sense of walking through the world without an understanding and a consciousness of the violence they were about to inflict on millions of people. So was it, was it a mistake? Yes, I think it was a mistake, by and large, repeated over four years, in which the basic decencies of millions of men who went to war were betrayed by their leaders, military and political, who simply didn't understand what they were doing. You mentioned their responsibility, different levels of responsibility. Do you think it's possible to say who was uh, the most responsible for the outbreak of war? I think now the older view, which I, I've um, uh, shared for a long time, uh, that the war was uh, hatched as, a, as an idea in Berlin and in Vienna, Germany and Austria-Hungary, um, uh, and then became irresistible to the other great powers, it has to be changed. Each of the major powers had it within uh, her reach, and an and immediate reach, to stop it. And we know now, because the uh, end of the Soviet Union has opened up the Russian archives, we know the role played by certain Russian figures that we didn't before. We know the role of Serbian military intelligence <clears throat> in dealing with the black hand and other student radicals. So uh, my sense is that every single combatant country had a responsibility for not stopping the war. But Germany and Austria-Hungary had the responsibility for lighting the match that set it off. Going back to commemoration and how, how we're looking at, at, at the First World War and remembering it today, um, what do you think of how it's been done so far in the US, coming here to Britain? Well, one, one of the things, I, because I've traveled around the world, I've, you know, in the course of this last year, to, to my utter amazement, it's an avalanche. I've had 52 different commitments, uh, of public speaking commitments wow. on commemoration. Basically, I can tell you one thing that is uh, quite extraordinary uh, for me as an historian. Uh, by and large, uh, commemoration is bottom-up. It happens from local authorities, not from the state. The state follows public opinion, and public opinion is family opinion. And so I think this is one of the great populist moments. The critical point about this is that it's, it's not directed by the government. It's, it, it comes from local uh, institutions, therefore is in many ways very impressive as a, a product of civil society in other states. The second thing that is fascinating for me, and I see this in France where uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have my retirement from next year on in Paris, um, is that historians don't matter at all. The stories that people bring with them to the First World War, the Black Adder stories, 
uh, they generate without us. We simply are swimming in a, uh, a stream that we didn't create and don't control. So historians are, I would, I would argue, a bit like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Hamlet. We're on the, on the margins, but we don't, we're not Hamlet. And we certainly don't tell people who Hamlet was. Um, the third thing that I find uh, quite extraordinary is that it's, it's by and large uh, secular. It's, it's, it's very, very, very little of it is religious. Mm. And there was an awful lot of religious statement and, and opinion. Think, for, for example, of the, uh, the war requiem of Benjamin Britten for the re-consecration um, of Coventry Cathedral after the Second World War is, is a requiem mass set to the poetry of Wilfred Owen. It's 1962. Uh, since then, 50 years have passed, and by and large, religious practice has gone into disuse. So that the, the terms in which people frame commemoration are not sacred, they're secular. Uh, they're about the loss of life, and the loss of limb, and the loss of hopes, the loss of belief in uh, the possibility of mastering uh, the world. Um, it's as if, you know, the First World War was a bloodbath inducing a kind of lesson in humility. So I, I think the, uh, uh, the landscape of commemoration that I've seen has shown that uh, in many parts of the world, war is not a matter to celebrate. It's a matter to mourn uh, and to grieve over. Uh, and that grief is by and large uh, something that happens. I think this is important. To me, the, the museums like the Imperial War Museum and the others, cemeteries, battlefield sites that I... I spent a lot of time in since I still help uh, run a museum of the First World War in France. Um, these sites of memory are the cathedrals of the 21st century. That's where great moral problems are posed. Maybe not answered fully, but at least posed. Uh, once I went to a meeting at the Imperial War Museum not long ago, maybe six months ago, and I passed the Anglican church on the other side of the street. There were a handful of people in it. There were thousands in the Imperial War Museum. So, uh, remembrance happens in place, in sight. Uh, and because the costs of travel are so low now, compared to what they were 50 years ago or a century, people from all over the world uh, are pilgrims of memory. And you know the, the best instance of that is um, next March, April, uh, Gallipoli um, is full. There's, there's no vacancies. The Australians had to have a lottery in order to see which of the, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000 people are going to go because the sheer volume of, of pilgrimage threatens to ruin the sites themselves. Um, it's, it's as if remembrance is a danger to the site of memory being remembered, being, being as were venerated. Uh, and this is happening everywhere. The, the uh, traffic in, uh, in, in, in war tourism has never been bigger. Uh, and and uh, has never been younger. Uh, it's not just students uh, and pupils at schools, but young people all over the world are traveling to these sites of extraordinary importance for their family history. And um, just just one sort of final thing is, it's, um, we haven't talked much about uh, you know American involvement and how it's being remembered in 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 the U.S. I mean, how what what is it like from the American point of view now? Well, 1914 is a non-event uh, mm. uh, in the United States, and there will be something in 1970. There is a national uh, First World War Museum in Kansas City, uh, Missouri, and it's doing very well. It's extremely well uh, attended. 
but the um, uh, the position, I think, of the majority of the American population is still dominated by the Second World War and the Cold War. Um, what makes it perhaps more complex is the vast uh, population that um, is the result of uh, both uh, documented and undocumented migration. Uh, there are people from all over the world, uh, Chinese, uh, Japanese, um, Europeans, uh, Asians, uh, Vietnamese. There are so many instances where immigrants can have their own family stories. But I think the American story is not at all unified. It's, as, as most things, there's everything in the United States, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Um, and there are those who are deeply committed to the uh, commemoration of the First World War, those who haven't heard about it, uh, and a whole range of people in the middle. And um, just one final question to, to end on. Um, it's a bit of a broad question, but I'm just wondering how, over the course of your career, how has your perception of the First World War changed? And can you recall your initial perception back when mm. you really, when you first realised this is what you had a passion to study? Mm. Has it changed? How's it changed? Yeah. Well, yeah. first, the first thing is, I went. I, I took an undergraduate uh, seminar in 1965 at Columbia University with a great historian, Fritz Stern. Thank God, still alive. Uh, 1965, and I'm still in that seminar. Uh, great teachers do that. Um, where I started was with the view that uh, the First World War um, was Europe's Vietnam. That it was a meaningless, stupid, bloody cruel, harsh, uh, appalling conflict um, that the United States uh, was about to indulge in in 1965 to 1975. Um, when I started, the uh, subject was very small, and none of us really knows the structure of our lives while we're living them. Uh, but I had no idea I'd be a First World War historian forever. Um, and the subject expanded exponentially. But in the course of it, um, what happened, I think the Vietnam effect is important. Uh, there were a number of very important interventions in our understanding of the First World War that came from cultural historians, came from literary historians. And I'm here for a meeting on war poetry. Uh, and the cultural turn that succeeded the collapse of Marxism as a theory of history has attached itself to the First World War in particular because of the effect on language. Um, the war poets are just one instance of it where language itself was cleaned up from the ugly uh, deformations of propaganda. Uh, that's what war poets do. They clean up language to make it real and maybe human again. That's what Owen and Sassoon did. Uh, and as a result of the uh, shift in historical study away from a certain kind of materialist interpretation to ideas and cultures, uh, the First World War grew radically. So from the mid-1980s, I've been a, a cultural historian of the First World War, and it's dominant in the Cambridge history to which you referred at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, there are three um, volumes, one called Global War, uh, which really is that, a second on the state, because the state ran the war. And transnational histories are histories about states acting across in a, a borders, clearly. Uh, and the third volume is called uh, Civil Society, which is about cultural history. 
And cultural history is simply the study of how people in the past have made sense of the world in which they live. And this volume is how people in the past, during the First World War and after, uh, made sense of the violent world in which they lived. Uh, so that's been the uh, sort of the focus of my research over the last 20 years. And, you know, to reach retirement age um, with the uh, privilege and enormous effort of putting out the three volumes, 2,600 pages uh, of the Cambridge History of the First World War with 70 different uh, authors in it, uh, has been a, uh, an experience that I will bring with me into retirement. That was Professor Jay Winter. The Cambridge History of the First World War is available to purchase now, published by Cambridge University Press. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now let's return to Emma for the latest history news. The Natural History Museum plotted to kill the Loch Ness Monster and display its carcass, according to newly published papers. Featured in David Clark's latest book, Britain's Extraordinary Files, the documents show that in March 1934, an unnamed official at the museum issued instructions to bounty hunters on how to tackle the mythical creature. The official said, Should you ever come within range of the monster, I hope you will not be deterred by humanitarian considerations from shooting him on the spot and sending the carcass to us in cold storage, carriage forward. Short of this, a flipper, a jaw or a tooth would be most welcome. To read about some of the other revelations and historic mysteries featured in Clark's new book, visit historyextra.com. In other news, 
a new study suggests that some of London's most popular picnic sites could be situated on top of plague pits. Victims of the 17th century outbreak of bubonic plague were laid to rest in emergency burial sites, hundreds of pits scattered across the city and surrounding countryside. Now, the Telegraph reports, Historic UK has released a map of the plague pit based on a variety of sources, including Peter Ackroyd's London The Biography, Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year, and Basil Holmes's The London Burial Grounds notes on their history from the earliest times to the present day. According to the map, there were plague pits in Golden Square Soho Green Park, Shepherd's Bush Green, Christchurch Gardens Westminster, and the site of Sainsbury's in Whitechapel. The outbreak of bubonic plague between 1665 and 1666 is thought to have wiped out 15% of London's population. Meanwhile, an air raid shelter built for Benito Mussolini and the Italian dictator's family during the Second World War has opened to the public for the first time. Originally a villa's wine cellar, the shelter in Rome was quickly constructed in 1940 by encasing the underground kitchen area in reinforced concrete. It features double steel doors and a contraption to purify air in case of a gas attack. It is not known if the dictator ever used the bunker. Tours of the shelter will run on weekends starting from the end of October, the National Post reports. Thanks, Emma. As regular listeners will know, we're always keen to receive your feedback about this podcast, which you can send in via podcast at historyextra.com, as well as on social media. One listener who got in touch recently was Julia Wood from Washington, D.C. Julia writes, I've discovered your podcast and I love it so far. My favourite episode has been the history of humanity. Not only was the subject matter interesting, but Yuval Harari made it entertaining and pleasant to listen to. I'm definitely interested in listening to interviews and lectures that he gives, as well as reading some of his work. Keep up the good work. Thanks for your feedback, Julia. And if you've missed the episode she's referring to, it's still available for download from our website and other providers. It was broadcast on the 25th of September this year. Next week, many people in Britain will be celebrating Bonfire Night, which marks the anniversary of the failed 1605 plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Our Features Editor, Charlotte Hodgman, paid a visit to Coton Court in Warwickshire, home to one of the plot's perpetrators, in the company of historian Dr Claire Jackson, to find out more about the dramatic events of 400 years ago. So Claire, we're, we're at Coton Court in um, Warwickshire. Um, we come here to talk about um, Guy Fawkes and the, the gunpowder plot. But before we get into the relevance of this site, perhaps we can just talk about the, the plot itself and the history behind it. Um, so just got to take us back to the beginning. Where did the idea of this plot come from? What was sort of happening at the time in England to kind of make this happen? Well, the key moment is probably the change of dynasty from the Tudors to the Stuarts. Um, Elizabeth had been famously excommunicated by the Pope in 1570, and that had loosened all the Catholics from any allegiance to what the Pope called a heretical sovereign. Um, she didn't have any heirs. There was always a lot of uncertainty about the succession, who um, would be queen or king after yeah. her death. 
always hopes that the Spanish might get involved or some other foreign power. But then James succeeds in 1603. He's got the strongest claim, but he's also a Protestant and he's got three heirs, two sons and a daughter. Mm -hmm. And that kind of focuses quite a lot of people's minds that actually that air of uncertainty has gone. Um, James, unlike Elizabeth, is also keen on making a peace with Spain. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot about tolerance, but actually doesn't seem inclined to permit legal toleration. So suddenly horizons begin to shrink for quite a lot of Catholics. Um, People, there's a wide spectrum of Catholic opinion. Yeah. Some people are prepared to put up with all sorts of privations or fines or imprisonments. Um, but others actually think, no, this isn't actually going to re-Catholicise England. If we actually want to get rid of this heretical Protestant religion, we need to do something quite decisive. Um, so the actual group of plotters are quite a small group of men in their mid-30s. Yeah. Their parents had all suffered hugely, parents' generation, grandparents' generation, under the sort of recusancy laws. Mm. Um, and it seems as though the small group thought, no, actually, we need to do something now. So their aim was to kind of get Catholicism back as the primary... Um religion in, in England. Well, one of the things that historians debate a lot is what were their aims and mm. there's a lot of reasons why that's yeah. not clear particularly as many of the main conspirators themselves were blown up in as, uh, in the sort of the aftermath of the explosion mm. at Holbeach House which is quite quite near where we are at the moment um, so a lot of it is reconstructed from some of the plotters testimonies and other people's evidence at later trials yeah. but as far as one can see um, there was an attempt to take out both James and his family, sort of heretical Scots king, who was perceived by a lot of the foreigners as being, um, by, the, by, by the plotters as being a foreigner. Yeah. Um, and quite poignantly as well, take out the Houses of Parliament. It wasn't just assassinating a monarch, it was actually that House of Parliament that had passed all these anti-Catholic penal laws as well. Mm. Um, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on blow up the king, blow up Parliament, take out all of the you know, all the sort of political establishment. There'll be so much chaos yeah. um, that we'll be able to re sort of reconstruct a Catholic state in the aftermath. Actually, the plotters don't place a lot of emphasis on the change of religion in some of their plotting or some of the evidence that survives. The idea seems to have been to abduct James's daughter, who was staying quite close by here in the Midlands, um, make her a sort of puppet sovereign. And the rest of the sort of blueprint seems a bit unclear thereafter. And the the people involved, I mean, everyone, you say gunpowder plot and everyone talks about Guy Fawkes, but obviously there are, there are other people involved. Who were sort of the key people behind the plot? There's a small group of conspirators, all yeah. in their mid-30s, all from um, well-established, most of them from well-established Catholic families. Um, actually, being here at Coton really kind mm. of focuses the mind because they a lot of them have Throckmorton connections, even if that's not really in their name. Yeah. As you say, we think of Guy Fawkes. Perhaps he's maybe the exception. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that he's recruited to this group of conspirators is partly that he's a clean face that he's been on the continent for a lot of the 1590s and 1600s and he's the one who can be trusted to take the gunpowder into London Um, perhaps the most sort of magnetic sort of charismatic centre of the plot is Robert Catesby Mm -hmm. Um, and he recruits two brothers um, Thomas and Robert Winter Um, he recruits several other individuals Francis Tresham and interestingly both Tresham and Catesby's mothers were Throckmorton's. There's a lot of Midlands mm. intermarriage all um, around where we are at the moment of sort of Catholic families. But a very small group of conspirators, all of whom are recruited by Catesby really for their particular expertise, whether it's access to the House of Commons or whether it's expertise in ballistics. Mm. So, I mean, it sounds like it took a lot of planning. Um, how long were they sort of plotting this before it actually took place or was going to take place? 
Some of that's quite unclear because mm-hmm. um, one of the problems with reconstructing how it happened yeah. is that there's a tendency, a lot of it comes from Tom Winter's confession um, in his trial. And there was a lot of temptation for someone like Winter to place a lot of emphasis on those who'd already died and been blown up. So particularly Catesby mm-hmm. um, and Wright and some of the others. Um, so, and uh, you know, partly to protect some of the people who are still alive, but also sort of priests. There's quite a lot that surviving testimonies leave out. Yeah. Um, but certainly this had germs in things like the Essex Rebellion that had started in 1601. There's quite a lot of continuity of personnel between those who'd been involved in Essex's failed plot and those who were later recruited by Catesby. Mm. So a mood really over the preceding few years. Yeah. I mean, how did James's rule compare to that of Elizabeth and, and Mary in terms of how Catholics were, were treated? I mean, did they have really cause to be doing this? Well, Mary's rule, Mary's reign was obviously the great moment mm, for Catholics. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth's was you know was fluctuated um and the bull of excommunication in 1570 actually fractured the sort of catholic community in some ways because it made um practicing catholicism almost now a form of sort of treason it sort of clarified the lines between what might just be quiet sort of occasional conformity Mm. what we often call church papists to those who were radically committed again being here in Coton court and one of the relatives of this house a Throckmorton had been involved in a Throckmorton plot in 1583 to restore Mary Queen of Scots okay. so there's a sort of history of sporadic plots mm. um, a lot of people were quite hopeful that James um, would, would be different his mother had been a Catholic Mary Queen of Scots yeah. she'd been executed by Elizabeth I there were quite a lot of Catholics who really thought he might try and seek vengeance on her martyrdom um, but James is a very committed Protestant um, he talks a lot of language about tolerance and um he's clearly not um a persecutory king by nature but he's equally um very concerned about the political threat that radical catholics would pose to his throne so what actually happened um on the on the 5th of november how did how do things actually play out um well it's more just a couple of days before it's a betrayal i mean the reason Mm. we probably know about the plot um is to do with the fact that just days before um one of the uh, conspirators Tresham, who is related again to this family yeah. um, here at Coton, um, probably sent, it's still not clear if he did or not, probably sent a warning letter to his brother-in-law, the Catholic peer, Lord Monteagle, no, presumably knowing that he would show it to um, members of the Privy Council. This was alerted to the king. James is particularly nervous about um, anything to do with gunpowder. His father's been blown up by gunpowder himself. Yeah. Um, he takes it seriously, whereas quite a few other people don't. Um, there's various searches of the Houses of Commons. Those are the sort of images that we know mm. quite powerfully of Guy Fawkes being found with all of this gunpowder sort of just underneath the Commons chamber. Um, he's arrested, taken into custody, amazingly resolute under questioning, doesn't reveal very much or actually doesn't really know perhaps what's panning out Um, but then it begins to circle around where we are at the moment in the Midlands seems to have been the assumption that um, there would be a great explosion complete mayhem Um, Princess Elizabeth could be seized there'd be a big sort of Catholic rising around the Midlands Um, instead of which you begin to get quite a very quick fall away the sort of the the nucleus of the conspirators Mm. try to sort of prolong it a little bit uh, try to sort of see through their their objectives they um, plunder Warwick Castle and various others but it begins to fracture Catholics in terms of those who um, are terrified by what they hear and eventually it ends out in, in, a, in a, it ends up in a sort of shootout at Whole Beach House um, okay. not far from here 
And what about the logistics of, of getting the gunpowder into Parliament, you know, and, you know, actually getting access to that amount of, of um, gunpowder as well? How did that, how did that well, work? Again, that was sort of a lot to do with Catesby's skillful recruitment mm. that he involved Thomas Percy, who's a servant of the Earl of Northumberland, who has access to lodgings directly under the Commons Chamber. Okay. This takes months um, overnight. Uh, during night time, they row across the Thames. I mean, it takes a long time mm. to assemble that amount of gunpowder. Um, but again, it's just a few trusted individuals. Um, so they did quite well, really, to, to not be discovered up until that point. And certainly James takes it absolutely seriously mm. and, you know, said, make, make no mistake. I mean, had this happened, this would have been the biggest conflagration. I mean, it wasn't only the explosion itself, it's all the kind of noxious fumes. Mm. You know, certainly so many, um, I mean, all of the political establishment would have been taken out. Yeah. And so what, what, what happened to those who were caught um, well, um, someone like Guy Fawkes um, initially passes himself off under a different name. Mm -hmm. um, James interrogates him himself and says, I can't find anybody who knows this person. And that was part of his attraction, that he was a clean face. Mm. He'd been on the continent. He'd got a lot of ballistics, technical experience and knowledge. He was the right person there. Yeah. Um, even James kind of admires his, what he calls sort of Roman resolution under torture, that he doesn't sort of crack. Um, but eventually, um, you know, the, the net sort of closes in on, on various individuals. Um, there's a shootout at sort of Hold Beach House when the main conspirators die. But others like um, Father Henry Garnet that had been here are later arrested, put on trial for treason. So those that were captured um, were mostly executed. Um, so when do um, the people who at Coton Court, when do they find out what's happened down in London? So the morning after... Um, Catesby's servant Thomas Bates arrives um, with a letter from Catesby um, and he finds um, both Father Garnet here and um, Lady Digby, um, sorry, Edward Digby who was one of the conspirators as well who had rented um, this property in October from the Throckmortons. Um, they read the letter and immediately they sort of um, are appalled. They would have blown up Parliament House and were discovered we were all utterly undone um, and there's sort of destroyed, destro they're really distraught. Um, yeah. I think Lady Digby realises her husband's you know, now placed himself sort of beyond any hope of sort of yeah. redemption. And Garnet claims that, you know, he tried to um, dissuade radical conspirators from this sort of type of action. But he wasn't, they didn't believe him. They always have problems with Garnet. He's a sort <laughs> yeah. of classic equivocator. Yeah. Um, you know. yeah. I mean, we're actually sitting, um, supposedly, in the room where um, the two women were sitting, weren't they, when they, when they found mm. out what had happened. Um, and there's also... There's a the priest hole just, just to our right here. Um, the priest holes, I mean, were they typical of these types of houses, Catholic homes? Mm. Did they have... Yeah, this is a really atmospheric room, partly, mm. partly because it's so light, it's at least sort of triple aspect and you can see for miles mm. around the sort of Forest of Arden. So that, in a way, makes it terrific for checking if anybody's, any sort of un, unwelcome presence is approaching. Yeah. Um, and this is apparently where Garnet... Um, said mass on All Souls Day, which was only sort of four days before the gunpowder plot. Um, and yes, I mean, most Catholic recusant houses um, had a, at least one priest hole. That's, that's quite a famous sort of double priest hole above mm. a staircase. In a way, the response to it is quite measured. Um, mm. You might have expected that if a monarch like James was looking for an excuse to go completely mm. after Catholics, this would be the perfect example. But James realises that this is the work of a hardened minority and yeah. that actually most Catholics 
are fairly loyal and peace, sort of peace-loving. Um, I mean, ironically, it's the families that are involved in the plot that later become key royalists in the civil wars um, in a, a generation later. So he's, he simply presses ahead with oaths of allegiance, really trying to separate out those Catholics who will not swear an oath of temporal loyalty to him as yeah. their sovereign from those Catholics who absolutely refuse that. And um, I, there were executions of the of the perpetrators, were there? Were they public? They were public, and the timings of them, people like Garnet's execution was, was moved a couple of days so it couldn't be near Easter in case it began to assume sort of an idea of martyrdom. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's, I mean, all of these, those sorts of public executions are always slightly double-edged for the authorities because you don't want to give somebody a platform, yeah. you know, to sort of um, announce that they're dying an unjust death for their cause. And why do you think this is this is the kind of this is the plot that people remember of the seventeenth century, don't they? Why is that? Is it because of the the impacts it could have had, or it wasn't immediately always celebrated? I mean, it became no. part of us by the eighteenth. I think really by the eighteenth century, sort of post um, the Williamite Revolution, um, it began to be sort of safe almost to sort of celebrate um, these particular events. Mm. It was a sort of seen as absolutely sort of significant that William of Orange landed at Torbay on the 5th of November, 1688. Um, and suddenly, remember, remember the 5th of November got going really in the 18th century. Okay. And the figures of Guy Fawkes began to sort of um, epitomise it. But in the 17th century, there was a lot of mention of powder treason, but there were quite a lot of other events, like the Irish Rebellion in 1641 or the Popish Plot in 1683, mm. that could be seen as the next stage in this endemic catholic conspiracy yeah. but there wasn't quite the same tendency to sort of home in completely just on the 5th of november you know, it's 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 this image that we have of guy fawkes and his 36 barrels of gunpowder mm. and all of that i mean through the 17th and we put him on the bonfire but through the 17th century it would been much more common to put the pope on the bonfire so pope burning processions were much more common mm. it's really an 18th century idea that guido fawkes might personify I think that's probably the main point as well. Yeah. That we have this image in our minds that it's all to do with Westminster and the Thames and mm. the heart of government. Um, but it was only ever really sort of the first strike. It was going to be the sort of prelude to you know, chaos. And this was really this Catholic heartland in the Midlands where they were hoping that all of the fact that all of these plotters were pretty much interrelated and mm. knew each other within this sort of shadowy, quite clandestine world of sort of... Uh, English Catholicism, yeah. that that might be the key for a, a Midlands rebellion. Yeah, I mean, we were looking at a map, weren't we, earlier, and this, they're all so close mm. together, all these, all these mm. different sort of Catholic properties. And that would be a sort of standard mm. route for priests or for Catholics looking for safe houses. I mean, mm. they would be very, very well known to each other. And actually, behind us, there's this sort of painted tapestry of Catholics who've suffered for their faith and in stained glass windows in houses like this. I mean, the real way of perpetuating a family's power if they were deprived of political office or anything because of their Catholicism was yeah. really through marriage. So it's really to try and keep your dynasty, dynasty strong and mm. powerful. Yeah, that, that was the main way in which a Catholic dynasty could, could operate. And just going back to um, kind of how it was all kind of found out, the letter, why was the letter sent? Why it, it was warning somebody, a Catholic in Parliament? Yeah, so... There is a letter that's delivered at Cyan House to Lord Monteagle, who mm. is Francis Tresham's brother-in-law. It's assumed that Tresham sent the letter, but not entirely clear, warning him not to attend um, the Commons on that night. And certainly there seems to have been evidence among the plotters themselves that they were concerned about good Catholics being blown up. Now, right. someone like Catesby thought, you know, there has to be some what we would now talk 
collateral damage, mm. that sort of thing just happens. Uh, Catesby sort of famously says, even if it was my own son, this, there's a greater cause here. But there's obviously nervousness, and particularly among people like Tresham, who repeatedly tried to offer the conspirators money to go abroad to do something different. I mean, he was probably the mistake in the recruitment link by right. Catesby. He's sort of the weak link. Mm. Mm. That was Dr Claire Jackson of Trinity Hall, Cambridge, with our own Charlotte Hodgman. Dr Jackson recently appeared in BBC Two's drama documentary Gunpowder 511, The Greatest Terror Plot, which is still available to view on the BBC iPlayer. And you can also read an article by Charlotte and Claire in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's magazine, you'll find articles on the Peasants' Revolt, Napoleon, the Battle of the Bulge and Agincourt. You can get hold of the magazine in all good newsagents and digitally. And if you're keen to try out the digital edition of BBC History magazine, we have a special offer running this weekend. From Friday to Sunday, all new subscribers to our iPad, iPhone, Kindle Fire and Google Play editions can enjoy a free 30-day trial. If you then decide you don't want to continue with your subscription, then just cancel it within the 30-day period and you won't have to pay anything. Look out for us in the newsstand or the app store to take advantage of this offer. And that's almost all for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall with Hester Vasey, while Ronald Hutton will be chatting about the restoration of Charles II. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 